Welcome to The Last Supper, your weekly podcast about art in Asia. I'm your host, Oscar Venhuis. Every weekend I sit down and release an episode bringing new perspectives and engaging dialogues with emerging and established artists, galleries, curators and collectors in Asia. Learn more about art in Asia with Christie's Education in-person and virtual art courses, gallery visits and webinars. Visit Christie's Education website and enter all in capital letters Last Supper 15 to enjoy a 15% discount. The website link and discount code for Christie's Education can also be found in the description of this podcast. Before we begin this podcast, I'd like to announce the inaugural event of the Supper Club 224, which will feature over 20 international and regional galleries. Supper Club is a week-long event that is a hybrid between an art fair, a third space together, and a hub for engagement with contemporary art. The Supper Club event is initiated by Willem Molesworth and Weisabella Chung of the PhD group, Alex Chen of the Shop House and is co-organized with the French Club in Hong Kong and will be curated by independent curator Anchi Lee. The exhibition space will be adapted by Bo Architects and the Supper Club is open from the 25th of March until the 30th of March 2024. More information can be found on www.supperclubhongkong.com. I sat down with Vietnamese artist Trong Gia Nguyen and discussed his personal experience in Belgium, the role of appropriation in his work and how he disassociates himself from materiality. We also delved into the notion of distributed ownership and possession of art, the intricate relationship between physicality and virtuality and how he auctioned off his belongings on eBay. Hello Trong, great to see you and how are you today? I'm very good Oscar, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Trong, where are you calling from? I'm calling from Brussels, Belgium, and you caught me on a on one of the few sunny days here. It must be a lucky day to do the podcast. You are originally from Vietnam, but lived in New York as well. What brings you to Belgium? Um, I ended up in Brussels because my wife is Belgian. And so we were living in Vietnam. Um, and in 2019, we decided to come back to to Belgium to be closer to her family. And um, and yeah, it, w- it was time to leave Vietnam at that point because it was also getting quite polluted as well. And so we were fearing for the health of our, our two kids and it, it made sense and to be close to you know their grandparents and all of that good stuff. And I had always wanted to live in Europe as well. Um, I lived in New York for a long time and in Vietnam for about four or five years. And um, it, it seemed as good a time as any to check out Europe and to be here and, uh, and yeah, and, and discover new things here. I see. So let's begin with today's podcast and explain to me what you do as an artist. Oh, it's always tough telling somebody you're an artist, right? Because what follows that meaning? Okay, well, I work independently. I don't really have a, a normal day job. I float around things are up and down and so you explain the best you can but also I mean for me I do a lot of things meaning um, as an artist I I make conceptual art I sometimes make things that are beyond the realm of art whether that be design furniture accessories to writing so it's it's a bit difficult for me actually so depending on who it is I I pick something and run with it but usually um, I'll say I'm an artist and of course the follow-up question from the other person is always 
what do you make? You know, and, and then that's when it becomes difficult for me because then I'm like, okay, well, let me just give the, the easy, easy answer I paint. But of course, it's much more than that. So it really depends on your energy level, how you explain your role as an artist. Exactly. And also, I think the investment level of the other person, I mean, they're, they're usually being polite, asking you that question. And then, you know, you have the, the elevator speech or you have the, you know, the, the Himalaya speech, you know, let's, let's go much higher and deeper. <laughs> so it depends on the person and what they're willing to invest in terms of their time listening to you and speaking and, and who that person is. But generally, you know, it's always fun talking about art. We are going to talk about your work today, but before I do this, how would you describe it yourself? I think the easiest response for that for me usually is just to say I'm a conceptual artist, meaning I, I make a lot of things and it doesn't really matter what medium I'm working in. It depends on the idea and what that medium calls for. Um, that could mean uh, a web-based project. It could mean a writing project. It could mean a sculpture. It could mean an installation and it, it could just also mean a, an idea floating about, you know, that also never needs to be made. And so those are some of the things that I'm thinking a lot about these days as well. If I heard it correctly, you appear to emphasize that you are a conceptual artist. Why the underlining of conceptual? Because I'm interested in the idea. The idea is the paramount thing in, in my mind especially this day and age where you know you're thinking about things like carbon footprint where you're thinking about too much commodification where you're thinking about too many things already existing in the world i ask myself that question a lot so the very premise of a, a concept is you know the first question that comes to mind is does it need to be made and so that's a a question that i ask myself a lot and sometimes it exists kind of just in my head and it's totally fine too so it, it depends you know on on the idea and how, and, and if it needs to be made, you know? So, I mean, I think in, in an ideal world, you know, the works would kind of just exist in your head and you can kind of translate that in, in a virtual reality kind of mode where they exist already, you know? So yeah, so, so the idea I think is the paramount thing when I say that, and the medium is secondary. So I, I generally, when I, when I make work, I never think about starting off from a painting or a sculpture. I start off from an idea and then that idea determines which direction I end up going. Has conceptual art always been an interest you had or how did you arrive at this? No, not at all. When I was in university, I started out uh, with, with fundamentals where you're spending you know, hours and hours in multiple courses, learning to draw and paint correctly. In those foundational courses, at least where I studied, the focus was on the process of making art and never focusing on the product itself. So, you would spend inordinate amounts of time just honing your skill, honing your seeing abilities, all these things. And so for years and years, I did that where the product was never the premise. It was always about the, the struggle of, of, of drawing, of painting, of understanding color, of understanding light, of understanding perspective, of understanding you know light, darkness, luminosity, all these things. And then at a certain point, I got over that, <laughs> you know, so I, I was really into the process. But then at a certain point, I got away from the process. And where I am at now, the process is not that important to me because I realize it's something that I can, that, that, that's not fully seen in the end, you know, so it's not always tantamount to 
investing in that process. And, and that depends on what the project is and what the idea is too. Sometimes an idea requires more of the process being shown and at other times it requires less of that being shown. So it, it really depends again on fully on the idea. But there wasn't always a time where I was a conceptual artist. There was a time where I was really into the physical mode of, of just making for the sake of progressing in this way, sort of like doing a long hike or something where you're taking this extended walk and through easy and difficult terrain and the ideas to experience and let those experiences move you stylistically, idea-wise, all these things. And I think throughout the course of the life of the artist, you work in those extremes. And so I was at that extreme of process at one point in my life and now I'm maybe at the other extreme where it, it really is not that important to me because I feel like you as an artist, you're always going to pursue processes. And so I just don't want to make that the focus because when you focus too much on process, then that process has its own inner beauty when it comes to art. And for my purposes, that's not enough. Just that kind of simple beauty of process isn't enough for me. So I, I feel like I need to go really further beyond that and even to leave it farther behind as necessary. How would you describe conceptual art in relation to abstract art? Because there are several ways to explain it. For example, that an abstract concept is an idea that doesn't exist and cannot be implemented in physical reality. So I'm curious to hear from you how you explain what conceptual art is and how this differs from abstract art. The basic answer for that for me would be that everything is conceptual art. So it's just your approach to art making. So there really isn't anything ultimately that's not conceptual art. I mean, even the process art that I was speaking about, that's a form of conceptual art too, is what you choose to emphasize and focus. Conceptual art in my vein is about focusing on the idea and less on the medium. But in terms of stylistically, I believe that everything is conceptual art. So it's a focus. So if you're talking about abstraction, it's focusing less on um, less on representational things and more on form and color and structure and those kinds of things. And when you talk about experience, have you considered not making art given the environmental developments and purely focus on the concept itself without the physical execution of it? Or in other words, have you considered to give up making it? One of the experiences that relate to this question is that about two years ago, a hurricane in Florida made its way up to New York, where most of my work had been stored during my time in New York from about 1999 to 2015. And basically, the storm created a flood that destroyed all my work in New York over a 15-year period. And since then, I, that's had me really rethinking about the material aspect of making art because as an artist you store things you save things for the purpose of showing the works later for the purpose of um, posterity rather and for the purpose of conserving those work and hoping that they live some other kind of life even if they're just in storage for the moment and then you find out that it's kind of meaningless it's almost like for me and my personal history it's almost like the time when my parents and family left Vietnam, you leave with nothing. In my case, through the course of mother nature, all these things were destroyed and also forgotten, kind of not through my control. And so since that experience, it really has me thinking about, well, you know, if I spend all this time, all this energy trying to preserve and conserve things, 
what's the point if you know mother nature has full control over things and in the blink of an eye all those things are gone and so how do i continue to make things in a vein that is sustainable that is environmentally conscious that also will have some kind of life of its own kind of beyond what i can do to preserve it and so those are questions that i'm asking now and by that i mean one of the answers could be similar to what i did in vietnam during my last show earlier this year last year rather where all of the works in the show for the first time in my life none of the works touched my hands they were all made in some roundabout way and the reason for this the concept behind this is that it's a it's an extension of this idea of getting away from the material aspect and how kind of works can survive and live on without the artist and even be created without the artist and if that creation aspect from the hands of the artist that process from the hands of the artist whether that's important or not I have a small favor to ask that will make a big impact. The Last Supper is offered to you at zero cost. And if you like this show about art in Asia, give this podcast a star rating or subscribe to this podcast channel. Many thanks and let's continue. Let's delve into your work. And if I'm not mistaken, you appear to categorize your work into three kind of labels. Songs of singularity, fireballs of reconstruction, and the last one in perpetuity. What can you say about this body of work? That section on the website is just the last three exhibitions I did essentially and I I didn't get around to archiving other exhibitions and more for the fact that I wanted the website to be just something simple that someone can come and reference really quickly in terms of what I've been doing recently. And so you just have those three shows and it's also what I have best documented at the moment. And I think it gives someone a pretty good glimpse of what I'm interested in and, and what I'm doing at the moment. So those three exhibitions, and I, if I remember correctly now, I think one is in Berlin, one is in Belgium, and one's in Vietnam. And it's a pretty good progression of, of the things I just mentioned in terms of going from this kind of material aspect to kind of disintegrating that aspect a bit with my, with my most recent show in Vietnam. And the earlier shows kind of alluding to this idea of being less constrained by the material aspects of art. If you don't mind, I'd like to talk more about your work named Perpetual Paintings, which consists of several pieces. One appears to be in painting with two aircrafts, a blue one and a white one on top of this. So what's going on here? Yeah, there's a, a lot going on in, in this particular show, and it covers a range of works probably over the last four years or so. So when you enter the gallery, the works that you first encounter are basically these kind of window grates, you know, that you see in Southeast Asia, these colonial window grates with these beautiful geometric patterns. And they're usually on the outside and kind of in older homes, and they're meant to kind of provide protection. And also as a design element, these really beautiful geometric patterns. And first arriving in Vietnam to, to live there in 2015, I noticed these a lot and I, I started documenting them. And when I first started referencing them in my work, I was making these kind of geometric windows out of wood, actually. And I was painting the wood and then cutting away the wood and leaving these beautiful geometric patterns. And the original windows are made of iron. And so they're very strong. They're, they're, they're meant to be secure, right? They're security gates, essentially. 
And what I chose to do was make them out of wood initially. So they would be these incredibly fragile um, window grates that had no purpose. And so this alludes to one of the ideas that I go back to a lot, which is kind of the domestic space. And in the domestic space, I reference many things from this space in, in many different ways. And one of the ways is, of course, architecturally. So these windows are architectural forms that, at least in Vietnam, they're part of, of an architectural beauty that's slowly kind of disappearing and dissipating because of all the construction that's going on with the desire of the Vietnamese to modernize. And so in a city like Saigon, there's a lot of destruction going on for the sake of building new, you know, what new buildings that oftentimes are kind of uglier, less well-built, all these things. But for the sake of bringing Vietnam into the 21st century in terms of creature comforts, air condition, all these things that you were not used to having before. And so from these wooden windows, they eventually evolved into, evolved back, I should say, into these iron windows that you see again in the gallery in the Vietnam show where instead of using the geometric patterns, the traditional geometric patterns, what I did was I used uh, the reference of cracked iPhone and smartphone glass. And so the shape and the pattern that you see is all broken, shattered smartphone glasses. And basically this, this is kind of alluding also to, to this notion of a portal, a window is something you see through. And so your smartphone is also some kind of portal that's taking you into an almost mediated existence, your second life, where the issues of public and privacy change in many different ways. And so I decided to basically create a physical version of this, a life-size physical version of this, into an architectural space. And you're, you're kind of confronting people with this black mirror is what is happening. So you're looking through this and it can take you into many, many, many uh, different spheres, whether that be a data, video, YouTube wormhole, or something else. But that's the evolution of those windows. And so in this space, you have this kind of maze that I created where the viewer is kind of forced to walk through this maze of five windows, five shattered windows, and kind of contemplate that a bit. And then the other work that you encounter immediately in the show is, is a painting that you see deja vu-wise again later in the exhibition. And so there are a series of paintings in the show that I created using Google SketchUp. So it's a, a 3D software program where I downloaded objects from um, a crowdsourced library that's publicly available online. The Google 3D Warehouse is what it's called. And on this warehouse, it's basically a library of almost any and every 3D object imaginable that people have created and uploaded for others to use. You can find things like probably every piece of IKEA furniture ever made. <laughs> so if you're an architect and, and, or an interior designer and you're designing a space for somebody and you say, I need a, an IKEA couch from you know 1995 or something, you can probably find it. So somebody has created a, a 3D file of this furniture to dimensional specs. And you can download this and, of course, place it into your room that you created, your architectural space that you created for whoever, right? For a public space, for a private space, residential space. And so this library is vast now. There are just millions and millions of objects. And so for this exhibition, what I decided to do was create this kind of Vietnamese connection, meaning dealing with kind of my heritage, my history and typing in kind of very specific search terms. You can look for things, you can upload things, 
and you can find things and then download them and manipulate them. So if I downloaded an IKEA table, you know, I can increase the length of it um, double if I wanted to. I can make it taller. I can make it wider. I can I can change every aspect of it actually. And so for this show, what I decided to do was do using a, a number of search terms related to Vietnam. It could start with Vietnam War. It could start with basic things like communism, like anything. So I was typing in these very kind of spontaneous search terms and then downloading a bunch of objects and treating these objects sort of like how you would still life objects. Like if I were in a studio or a drawing class, you quickly assemble things that you have available, right? Whether that be a box, a drapery, a cow skull, and you do color studies, you do light studies. Treating it that same way, I rearranged these objects that I downloaded into into Google SketchUp and rearrange them into a still life. So digital 3D still life in electronic form. And then what I would do is I find one perspective in Google SketchUp and I took a snapshot of that perspective of the still life that I set up. And then I, um, I exported it, sent the file to a painting studio in Vietnam and had them paint it. And so what I'm doing is in this 3D file, you have the possibility of interacting with it beyond a 2D format, right? So when the image is painted, you have a 2D representation of it. But after that, what I do is I take the file and I upload it into the library again, the Google library again. So now it's publicly available. So if you go on there, you see all the paintings that are in the show in its 2D format. So you see the one snapshot that I took but if you go in there, you're also able to walk around the table. You're able to go inside the airplane that you're referencing. You can look underneath the airplane. You look on its tail. And so you see all these um, other things that you're missing from the 2D object, which in reality is really limited. And the digital aspect of it is actually much more broad in scope and deep in scope to the point where on these paintings, you know, I, I don't sign any of them, but in the digital painting, if you go to the other side of the tail fin of the airplane, you see that I signed the tail fin. You know, so there are these kind of little insider things that exist that doesn't exist in a normal formatted painting. And so what I'm also doing is treating these files and these paintings sort of like a photograph. So like a photograph, you can have the same image printed exactly as you intended if you go to the same, if you use the same paper, if you use the same printer, if you use the same calibration, if you use the same color profile, you get exactly the same photograph. And so that's what an addition is. In this case, rather, what I've decided to do is treat it in that same manner, but at the same time, let go of the exact duplication of it. So the painting that you see when you first enter the gallery is of a, of a Vietnam Airlines airplane landing or taking off and piggybacking it is the space shuttle. You know, and I, I grew up in Florida and so I used to see the space shuttle come and go. And these are images kind of from my history, but then also connected to Vietnam, of course. That's really fascinating how you work with the meaning of multiple dimensions, both in the virtual and physical world and how the virtual version appears to have more depth to it than the fiscal one. And I see the connection, of course, between the US and Vietnam as well. Yeah, there's, there's always gonna be, I think, a, an autobiographical link that I can't escape from. And I think it, it's just part of who, who I am too. And I think it's important to have these biographical, autobiographical details in there. And it's, it's not something, you know, I'm shying away from or, or making a deliberate 
attempt to use or not use. It's just uh, I keep it spontaneous, really. So if, if I'm in the mood to to download a rock and roll band, so literally you can type in rock and roll band, something will come up. You can type in dictator, something will come up. You know, and so I'm taking all these terms that you wouldn't normally search in this kind of warehouse and seeing what pops up. And by taking it out of my hands, the idea is that anyone can go up to this warehouse and to download this file, take it to the studio, and they can output their painting too. That's totally fine with me. I, I kind of let go of that idea of possession too. And so the idea of the material aspect of it and the possessive aspect of it are two things that are really important to this body of work. And so it's experimenting with how this work can live on beyond me. So anyone can have access to this. Anyone can have a painting made. And even the two paintings of the same of the same um, file in the show, they're slightly different because two painters made it. So that aspect of it is really interesting too. So you start questioning, well, you know, what is the truer version? What is the more authentic version of it? If at all, you know, maybe the online version of it's the most authentic version, the digital version that you can actually walk around and that you can see from every conceivable angle. Maybe that is more important. Maybe it's more interesting in the end. And so there's a certain amount of, I think, letting go to. And so that's part of the process of it all too. And so I connect it to um, the best reference that I can think of is photography. This idea that you can duplicate things beyond you. So you used a open source library, which you then appropriated and uploaded back to the open source library. So you created this kind of perpetual cycle of work and you forgo your IP or intellectual property for the greater good. Is that your vision to make all your art freely available? At the moment, that is a concern of mine. And it's strictly related to, again, this idea of losing all your works through uncontrollable circumstances and forces of nature. So how do you confront that? And how do you deal with that aspect of it? And letting the work have its own notion of posterity. And that's something that's really important to me right now. And so this idea of having something be able to archive itself beyond me. And even with the Google warehouse, you know, how long does such a warehouse last? I have no idea. It's digital. So that means that it's probably stored in several data centers kind of all over the world. So there has this, it has this kind of safety security component built in. But what does that mean ultimately? I'm not sure. But I might be sure <laughs> that it lasts much longer than me putting something into storage, as had, has been proven. If the trend is towards open source and no personal ownership because we can rent most of the items and things we need, how do you see the future of art? Do you believe that people will also stop purchasing and possessing art? I'm not sure about that. Probably not. I mean, I think there's always going to be some semblance of ownership. But the other fine line, I think, is also this notion of appropriation. And so this idea of being able to appropriate, like, like what I'm doing with the still life, right? I'm appropriating files and objects that someone else ultimately created and doing something with it and recreating it and changing it in a way to, you know, make it quote unquote art. But in terms of the ownership of it, if we didn't have to be concerned about sustainability, by that I mean, okay, well, you have to pay your rent, you have to pay your mortgage, you have to feed yourself all these things. If the money component, the capital component didn't fall into it, then I would say, you know, 
Yeah, I mean, this possessive, the, the possession aspect of it is not so important in the end, you know. And if there was some mode of moving art around where people can have it in one place and move it around to the other, and there, there are things that exist of that sort, right, where people have banded together and crowdsourced money so that they buy, you know, a Picasso or something and 500 people own this Picasso. So you own one 500th of a painting. And, you know, I find that really interesting thing too. And I have no qualms about something like that coming into the fold. I mean, I know that's happening now within the digital sphere with uh, NFTs and such, right? Where you, you have multiples of these things and they get moved around in certain ways too, where that traditional notion of owning and possessing an object is no longer what it used to be. And for sure, I'm, I'm interested in changing that aspect of it too. You know, I, I think it's a really interesting way of looking at it because I think why keep artwork in the few hands of collectors who can afford it, that kind of thing. You know, I think it should be a little bit more available or at least be able to be seen. And how do you go about that? I'm not 100% certain, but I'm open to to other ways about thinking about that, you know, and in my case, it's about letting someone else kind of have access to the the creative component of it. And yeah, and, and changing it as they please, because in the end, they're going to do it anyway. You know, so I mean, ultimately, I, I look at artwork all the time. And, and I'm always playing around with other people's artworks, too. By that, I mean, I don't always show it. But in terms of in your sketchbook or whatever, you're always kind of appropriating things and changing things and drawing over them and, and doing all these things that one might consider iconoclastic, right? It's an important thing to think about the notion of, I think, possession. So this notion of possession and ownership is really fascinating, especially with the development of new blockchain and NFT technologies and where you can have multiple owners possessing one piece of work. Well, I did a, a project, I mean, it's, it's a long time ago now, in uh, 2001, I did this project on eBay where I, uh, I inventoried everything in my Brooklyn studio and apartment, but using eBay as the format. So I was looking at how these everyday items, how they can change into rarefied art objects. You know, so from basically January 1, 2001 to December 31st, 2001, if you were on eBay, you saw something of mine. <laughs> you saw everything of mine, actually. So there was nothing that went uninventory. So I took this kind of approach that a museum or gallery would in terms of doing a condition report with an artwork, right? Writing its dimensions, details, condition, all these things, and kind of experimenting within the fold and mechanism of eBay at that time. And so I would put things on there that there were things on there that were obviously more art-like objects, but then there were things that were not obviously art objects, right? So every auction on eBay, so eBay works with auctions. So every auction that I put up, I would sign it in the description with my initials in the year 2001, just like you would a painting. So there was this kind of digital signature. And at that time, early on in the project, I started in January and in February, the New York Times decided to write a, a big article on artists experimenting in with, with the internet, right? And so one of my, my project was one of the three that they chose to write, write about. And when this article came out, it created this divergent audience, right? So when I started this project, there was nothing on there that told you it was an art project. I was just doing it as you normally would on eBay at that time for people, and people would go on there looking for bargains, essentially. And, and, and so there was this kind of 
notion of just putting things up there and kind of letting these works evolve into what they might become. And by that, I mean an object or otherwise. And so now, after this article came out, you had this art audience who were going on to eBay, looking at my things, and in their minds, they were thinking about everything as an art object, right? And so I would have things like an unused roll of scotch tape, an undeveloped roll of film, and people would buy these things, right? And with the notion that you're getting a certificate of authenticity at the end, right? Because at the end of every auction at eBay, I printed out, eventually I printed out this electronic documentation that told you how many people bid on it, what the starting price was, what the ending price was. I had a photograph of every object. And so much like a, a real auction, you know, it had all these things that you would kind of see in a, in a Christie's catalog. And so you had this kind of big art audience now who are going on there buying just my crap. <laughs> and a lot of it was crap. And uh, in, in the end, I, I sold probably much more than I should because of this article. I, I ended up so, selling probably about 15% of my things. And, and the, the project was about inventory, so it didn't matter. It was about you know, inventorying it and registering it. But in terms of what we were talking about earlier, in terms of possession and ownership, you know, there were people who were buying these things and I was transferring some sort of ownership to them too. So I was putting on eBay kind of conceptual ideas too. You know, like I put up this whole project that someone could use for us as a graduate thesis in art school and someone bought it. You know, I, I forget what the project was, but I, I wrote out this whole description of a project and someone bought it. I don't know if they used it in their art thesis, but they, they bought it. And so you had this movement, I think, of, of ideas and, and of collectorship as well in, in a very interesting way. And it was one of the early examples of how I was kind of thinking about such a thing too, and this notion of attribution, right? So in the end, the only thing that now that exists in terms of attribution is the fact that I downloaded all these auction records. And so eBay kept that for you and basically you could print it out at the end and eventually what I did with it is that I printed out every single auction and I did a total of a thousand and one auctions, sort of like the thousand and one nights, this idea of like always having to entertain people, right? <laughs> Telling them a story and keeping it going. But a thousand and one auctions, but encompassing everything that I own, right? So there would be one auction and it was spontaneous. I did something every day. So one day it would be something like all the red objects I could gather. You know, and so I would write about it. And so you would have an auction of red things. And so you would have random things of that sort. And then you would have conceptual things. And then you would also have, um, I also did a, a photograph each day. So it became this kind of visual autobiography of my life at that time. And of course I was in New York and it transpired also, uh, one of the things that transpired that year was 9-11, right? With the World Trade Center. And so I remember I was out, out in the street in Union Square. I, I could see the towers and I took a photo of the towers falling actually and I put it on eBay and I don't know what the security measures and such at eBay were at that time but they immediately took it down and so this photograph that I took no longer exists I momentarily put up these files and then I deleted them right and so they existed kind of on eBay and so you have this kind of interesting interesting um, record of things as well. And so again, it's kind of utilizing this uh, platform. And so for my idea, again, in terms of conceptual art, it was like I had just moved to New York and I'm like, you know, what can I do that's kind of substantial but doesn't cost any money? You know, so I came up with this project, right? And so it, it, it again, kind of the medium ended up being eBay. 
you know, so again, it, it gives you, I think, an idea of kind of how I, I work as well. Yeah, but that is an interesting example, I think, of, of ownership where you're, where you're really letting go of things, you know, and, and how people decide to treat them. So, you know, what is a, a photo album might have just been my photo album. But in this case, because of its, uh, yeah, because of its context within the New York Times, it becomes a work of art. And so ultimately, I think it's looked upon as basically a thousand and one work of arts that were, were created within that one year. Oh, wow, that sounds like a really great project. And did you end up with an empty house after you sold most of your items on eBay? Not exactly. I mean, I, I sold about 15% of the of, of things and the the premise was not to sell things, it was to inventory it. And so to, to finish off, I, what I did eventually is I took all the auctions, 1,001 auctions, and I organized them into months. And basically I created an encyclopedic series of, of books from that whole year. Then, and in every page, it's just an auction record. And so actually it's a, it's a project that I've never shown actually. I did it and it was never shown. And then I published the books, I printed the books. And then of course they were destroyed in this flood. So I, I don't even have them at the moment. I have the, the digital records of them. So at some point I'll publish it again. But the life of a, an, an art object, yeah, it's not uh, secure in any way. I now live in Hong Kong, but I realized that when I was living in the Netherlands or Holland, People love to archive and make maps of almost everything. I'm not sure if this is a Northern European thing, but people not only make city maps, but also maps of trees and all kinds of other objects and places. So I wonder if you are a person that likes to archive and document your own routines as well. I can be. I can be. I mean, generally... I try to document things as quickly as I can usually, but that also means with what I have available at that time, you know, in, in 2001, that could have been, you know, a two megapixel camera, right? And now, of course, you have your, your smartphone. I try to keep a record. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty good at it. I wouldn't say that I'm obsessive about it, but I also know that when I need something, I, I like to be efficient. It's more for the sake of efficiency. So if I need something to give to someone for an exhibition, I'd like to have that material ready. And um, it's just, uh, yeah, it's my way of being efficient more than, more than really about organization. You know, it's not that I like to do it or that I'm, I'm obsessed by it. It's just that I like to be efficient when, when I need to be. So you basically document your items, not because it is part of your art practice, but so it's organized and so that you know where things are exactly exactly i mean in terms of the the details i mean those are important things that don't need to be rushed you know i mean i, I can always get around to to documenting a work and right now i mean one of the things that i'm really behind just like for many artists is just the written component of works right i mean it's like you have a visual record of it and you have the the basic caption of these works but then you're not getting the, the full description and the stories behind all these things. And I find that, you know, all those things are really important too, especially for my work where it needs this kind of context. So if I were just showing to you, you know, this published tomes of eBay, I mean, what does it mean, right? I mean, unfortunately, I think my work needs that kind of, of background and history. And it's something that I'm interested in too. I mean, that's part of my process. It's not something I like to do, right? When I go to a gallery, I, I generally never pick up a press release. I never pick up any written materials. I like to just think about the artwork myself and what 
it brings and how I encounter it and it encounters me and, and let that organic process happen. But in terms of my own art making, the context is really important and these, all this kind of background material, it's, I wouldn't say it's essential, it's important, you know, because I don't always think that we will have that kind of material available for an art object or an artwork. So you kind of have to be prepared for not having that. But I think it can add value to the work too, if you do have that material. And so at the moment, I just don't have the bandwidth, I think, to write about all these works. And I think there's a, yeah, it's almost like a book, right? I mean, there's, it's, every, every work is in a way a, a chapter of its own that you can really in, give towards. And I, at some point I, I would love to be able to do that, but I haven't found the best efficient way to do it, right? When I look at a great piece of work, I always wonder about all the work that has gone into this. And I'm always really curious about how it developed into what I see in front of me. I always loved the kind of behind the scenes documentaries, the untold stories and the context of the work. Sure. I think when you're you're making a work, you're imbuing it with these ideas and with uh, most of my shows, I mean, like the, the, the recent one in Vietnam, I, I gave a number of walkthroughs, personal walkthroughs to friends and to friends and collectors and such. And much like we are discussing and talking now, you discover things. And I, I really love that aspect of it about the work itself that you didn't think about initially when you were making it or when you were in the process of, of refining it even. And so you find that when you're looking at it from this perspective and as you're talking to someone kind of spontaneously, all these ideas kind of pop up in all these meanings that you you are certain is relevant and that's it it makes sense but that you weren't necessarily thinking of it consciously at that time when you were making it and that's one aspect i really like about giving walkthroughs to, to exhibitions and i think it's similar with the podcast I'm, I'm thinking about these works that i've made and what i thought at that time and now talking about them again i i can think of other ideas that are really pertinent to them that i didn't voice at that time but makes perfect sense in the big scheme of things you know and i think with my website too it jumps around but i think that's one interesting component too is that you can jump around but then you you start noticing thematic things too and motifs that run through the bodies of work that connect them very solidly actually and that that was kind of purposefully done for that as well to kind of let those uh, networks kind of form for people you know however that may work you said as well that it is unavoidable not to have a autobiographical element in your work. What can you say about if your work has become more or less autobiographical over time? Most of the time, I think there's an impersonal aspect to it, but you almost can't escape the personal aspects that are kind of imbued in the work. You know, I mean, even if I didn't think about any kind of personal element when I'm making a work, it always comes out in the end that there's something there, you know, that there's something tethering it to some autobiographical component. And again, it's not deliberate or not deliberate. You know, I let those things kind of, those meanings and those connections happen naturally too. You know, if I'm thinking about domestic space, if I'm thinking about architectural spaces, you know, I, I can think of those in, in both the public and private sphere. So if I'm thinking about it in a public universal term, then it has that aspect, but then I also am experiencing those things from a very private aspect. Like these windows, I, I see them everywhere in Vietnam, but I lived also with 
such windows in my own apartment in Vietnam. And so I think about them, you know, in this very intimate space, but then I can think of it in a more universal encounter as well. And um, I think both of those things are important and bring, and bring something to the work. I don't always like the personal elements kind of invading the work necessarily, you know, because then when it gets to this, I don't know what else to call it beyond getting kind of like intimately sappy or whatever, you know, but, you know, I, I try to stray away from that too. But at the same time, I don't mind personal elements getting into the fold because I think when you're dealing with, again, with space, architectural spaces, and for me, what I do in terms of installations, that personal relationship is important, you know, in terms of how I'm considering the domestic space. If, if I'm working on an idea about domestic space, I want to think about, you know, not only the, the feminine energies that we normally associate with domestic spaces, but I want to think about my energies, meaning like, okay, as a father with kids, all these things, how does that relate to the domestic space too? I don't want to, to root those things out either that are strong connections for me. So a lot of times I'm making work, I, I wanted to have this full scope of something that hopefully is a more kind of universal experience, but then that's something that someone can also take very personally and also kind of bring their kind of intimate connection suit as well. And so it's kind of just providing within the work a space where you can experience the full scope of what it can mean. Earlier, you told me that all your work is conceptual. So what are the big ideas and concepts that you are interested in at the moment? Well, I'm, I'm still thinking about a lot of these same material components. And so this year I don't have so many uh, exhibitions lined up. So I'm kind of refocusing what I want to do. And one of the ideas that I wanted to work on a long time is performative theater project that I, I've, I've wanted to do for a long time. A good friend of mine who's an, an artist and collector in the US, um, we started this project about a good 10 years ago now, where we were going around the US interviewing my family members who all were together and extended family who, who left together when we, 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 when we escaped Vietnam on the final day of the reunification of the country. So there were 14 members in my family. And so, you know, we all remember it differently. My, my parents spoke about it a little bit here and there throughout the course of their, their lifetime. And my siblings did as well, but they were always kind of very fragmentary, right? And so we decided to, to make this project where we would try to reclaim some of these stories and to put them down on paper before they disappeared as well. And so we went around the, the US interviewing all the members of my family who were still alive at that time and basically asked them for their memories on the, the two-week period kind of before we left Vietnam and kind of immediately after, and to see where memory intersects and how we, how we memorize correctly, how we fabricate things, um, how we embellish things, and really looking at this notion of memory from a, a personal, intimate experience, but also from, a, again, the kind of universal immigrant refugee experience as well. And so we were able to do this I mean, in terms of actually doing the physical component. But what we realized in the end was that although my family members were really willing to get on camera and to answer my questions, I also realized that they were also keeping things in and not divulging everything that I knew was in there. They were, and that could be because of personal trauma or embarrassment or whatever. I have no idea. They were very 
natural on camera, but then you could tell that there was a wall keeping certain amounts of important information that they weren't willing to publicize, even to me, off camera. And so this project was never finished, but we, we had collected a lot of materials. And so in the, the last year, I decided I want to make this a performative piece. And so meaning it could be end up being a, a theater piece in a traditional venue, or it could be for a performance art festival. I don't know. I've just started this and started working again. And so this good friend of mine, David Raymond, and um, a good friend of ours in, uh, in New York, who's a stage director, Brian Reinhardt, are um, collaborating on this. And so I'm, I'm in the process of, of writing this work right now. And over the next probably nine months, see what unfolds. I'm doing a, um, a residency at this beautiful um, old Art Deco house, a landmark building in, in Brussels in, in the fall. And this is the project I proposed to them. And so I'll be working out and living at this house and probably doing a lot of writing and tweaking. And also, hopefully, at some point during this year, getting a chance to be in one space with uh, two collaborators and kind of fleshing this out. And um, I, I don't know fully what I'm going to get yet, but it'll, it'll be something probably unusual and kind of unfolding in, in many directions. And thinking about, again, this kind of immigrant experience, and I've read a, a number and saw a number of projects and texts on this very thing, you know, I mean, in Vietnam, everyone and, and every, everyone has an amazing story, you know, all the, all the people and individuals that escape, as you talk to any of them, it's like, it's an amazing story, you know, and so, you know, mine is just another example of, of, of this, uh, another chapter, I think, in this uh, kind of amazing book of documentation of what, what transpired kind of historically. And so I'm trying to create something that maybe it's a little more unusual. I, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot um, that I'm throwing around idea-wise at the moment. And, um, you know, a lot of it's autobiographical. But as we were saying before, I don't like to keep things within that, strictly in that vein, because then it doesn't really, it may not affect as much as it could, whatever that means. And so that's, that's the thing that's, that I'm really engaged in at the moment is this particular project. And it takes quite a bit of bandwidth, I think, to do it. I mean, writing is, is a challenge for sure. You know, I, I, I think I'm a pretty good writer, but I think it doesn't come naturally for me as visual art does. And so it will be, it will be some kind of real struggle with it. But that's part of the, the challenge and the fun of it all, too, is to see what we, we get in the end. And so right now I'm kind of in the early stages of writing scenes and thinking what what they could develop into and how um, beyond, you know, gallery and museum walls, how such an artwork would look on a in a stage format. We were also talking about immigrants. How do you see yourself or how would you describe your status in Belgium? Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, it's unusual for me because, well, unusual, not unusual. I mean, I, I think back to my parents, right? I mean, when they, they left Vietnam, when they we arrived in the U.S., my dad was probably 41 years old and my mom was 39 years old. And at about that same age, I realized that I'm doing the same thing. I made the conscious effort to move to Belgium. They didn't have a choice, right? And so they, they just appeared in the US. They had to learn a language. They had to find a way to make a living. They had no choice. And I find it interesting that through a more conscious choice, I decided to emigrate to Brussels and also take on the same kind of challenges in a way, you know, of having to find work, having to find a way to sustain yourself, sustain your family, um, learning a completely difficult language for me, which is French here. 
And um, yeah, it's interesting, you know, and also kind of having left a lot behind. I mean, especially with the, the flood, um, you know, shortly after I moved here, it was like, it w really was a kind of a deja vu moment for me in relationship to when my parents left. They lost everything through circumstances beyond their control. And, and, and in the end, so did I in terms of what I had in New York anyway. So it, it's at least my choice. A personal story that I have about losing items, there's been several occasions where I have lost all my photos that I had stored on my desktop and on my laptop computer. And this was before you could store it in the cloud. But what I realized was that I was, of course, annoyed at the time. But for me, it was really easy to disassociate myself from the images or objects. So I have a lot of stuff at home, but it appears that I do not emotionally attach myself to it. I wonder, as a conceptual artist, what your relationship is with objects and abstract ideas. I think the experience with my family helped me out with that quite a bit, right? Seeing that growing up, my parents are, were, were both very um, zealous Christians, right? And so sometimes when I would ask them about, you know, whether they, they miss Vietnam and all this kind of stuff, I, I got, in a way, some very surprising answers in the sense that my dad would say, you know, I mean, it, it was God's will that we, we left Vietnam and it's, it's okay, you know? I mean, and, and they literally came to the U.S. with nothing except a, a briefcase of a few photos and documentation of, of our birth records and things of that sort. But beyond that, there was nothing. And I think growing up in that kind of history, it kind of prepared the grounds for probably how I deal with those losses now. And in in a positive way, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not so connected to things materially either. I think because of my connection to the way my parents thought and how that kind of influenced me materially. So I've, I've never really been a material person anyway. You know, I mean, I, I, I like things, I mean, at the end of the day, but it, it, whether it's in front of me or not in front of me, it's not a, it's not a big deal or a big loss if I don't have things. After the flood and losing my things from storage, I was kind of surprised and not surprised that I didn't have more of an emotional reaction to it. Like I, I, I was like you, like you're talking about, I was totally fine. You know, I mean, I know I have, I guess, some records of it in my computer, that kind of stuff. But the knowing that the material component of it no longer existed, it didn't bother me so much, I have to say. And even now, I mean, I'm processing it, of course, in, in, in my art. So it, it, I am going through some kind of, I don't, I don't want to call it trauma, but I'm going through some kind of consideration of it. And it's important to me. But in terms of the emotional impact, the emotional gravity of it, I want to say that, you know, it's, it's okay. I, I feel completely fine. It's not, you know, it's, it's something that, um, that I'm used to. And it's, it's maybe more second nature to me than, than it should be, but that's ultimately what it is. You know, I think I find solace in the fact that my parents went through this and, and they were okay in the end. And I think there are experience happens in many ways, you know, and the, the idea that they are, they are represented by photographs or by objects is not always the only way that that experience is meaningful, right? And anything else that you want people to know about your work? Ooh, that's a hard one. 
What I was thinking about when you asked that question is that, you know, the idea, I think of uh, leaving the U.S. and living in Vietnam, where I, of course, I, I speak the language. I, I grew up in that culture as well. So it was very, it was second nature to me, you know, it was, it's going home every time I go to Vietnam and then going to Europe. I maybe feel less at home here than I do in Vietnam. And so that's something I'm still grappling with after four years, you know, of course, going through the pandemic here too. So it's, uh, the trajectory, I think, of an artist, and it's an interesting thing to think about, I think. I mean, one of the things that we haven't talked about, actually, is the, I think the, the commercial element, I think, of the art world. And so I think going from Vietnam, where you're in a new place and, and, and dealing with new people and encountering new people, you know, if, if I could change maybe one thing, I feel like I wish I could spend a great amount of time more in one place at a time. You know, I mean, we, we made the de decision to leave Vietnam, but in reality, I think I could have easily stayed another three or four years and that things kind of develop as well, artistically, commercially, all these things, um, sustainability, all these things. And then coming now to Europe over the last four years, you, you start over. And I think that component of starting over is really interesting. And it's something I, I, I'm thinking quite a, a lot about too. You know, this concept of in a way always not always, but like of sometimes having to start over. And of course, you see these in, in world events, too, in terms of conflict and wars and displacement. And so all these things are, of, uh, are in a way normalized, right? And so it's, it's something that I'm kind of grappling with in personal terms, too. Well, okay, I'm going to ask you the last question of The Last Supper. If you were to have your final meal, who would you invite and what would you talk about at your final or last supper? Good question. Give me, give me a moment to think about that. So many people, right? To consider is the problem. Immediate family is the most important. And, you know, I mean, I, I was just thinking that maybe I would invite, you know, it, it wouldn't be visual artists. I think it would be maybe, you know, a poet of some sort, right? Of someone like, I don't know, like a... Mallarmé or Rimbaud or Baudelaire or something of that sort, I'm not sure, but then, um, yeah, but then the more you, you think about it, you realize, you know what, the, the people I would invite would be, I think, on a, on a vinyl record. I would just bring a, a, a number of vinyl records and, and just play the songs, and I think that those would be kind of my dinner guests, right? Because I think the conversations that you have through that channel, um, and, and I say that because my, my wife just bought me a old-school record player last year, and so I started collecting albums again. Every time I listen to one of these, I realize that it's kind of like a dinner conversation. You know, I mean, they, they, I know what they're going to say <laughs> in, in these lyrics and these songs, but my, my response is going to be different every time, right? My retelling or my, my answer to something, to what's being conveyed in, in, in these songs, I'm, I feel like I'm, I could say something different every time. I could have a different conversation every time. And I think that's... Uh, lovely in a way and I think that's enough thank you Trong it's been a real pleasure to talk with you today thank you Oscar thank you for listening to today's episode of The Last Supper with artist Trong Gia Nguyen if you like the show about art in Asia, you can support us by giving this podcast a star rating and subscribing to it. 
More information about each episode can be found in this podcast description and on the website www.thelastsupper.asia. And before you go, you can follow The Last Supper on Instagram at thelastsupper.asia. And also, if you have any questions, suggestions and new subjects about art in Asia, feel free to contact me on Instagram or on my website www.thelastsupper.asia.